Hello and welcome back to the Yeshua Judaism series of podcasts. This is part 8 in our discussion of Oral Torah, proof of its legitimacy and necessity. In this part 8, we're going to proceed into premise number 3. You may recall uh, I basically stated that there would be five premises and that each of those premises would be investigated and discussed and the conclusion would be that indeed oral Torah is both legitimate and necessary. So here we're in premise three and it really picks up a bit. It picks up off where part seven ended. I had already begun to discuss how the New Testament itself demonstrates support for oral Torah. And here in premise three, we're going to go deeper into that. So premise three, the New Testament supports and is itself a small presentation of basic oral Torah. Now, this subject of oral Torah is one of many examples of issues for which enormous value can be found within Judaic literature. It is evidence of the urgent need for believers in Yeshua to repent of their desecration of the eternal Creator through their rejection of His eternal teachings, His Torah. It exemplifies the need for Christians to lay aside forever their extreme bias against anything Jewish and to embrace Torah since only by doing so will advancement of the coming kingdom of God, Yeshua, the King Messiah, and the true teachings of the New Testament succeed. Until then, all that will be advanced by Christianity is continued Christian error and desecration of the eternal through outright rejection of his teachings. This is particularly true of the Oral Torah of Judaism which Christians and many anti-Paulists basically despise and consider, quote, traditions of men, end quote. They take specific negative references in the New Testament to traditions of men and then wrongly expand them to assume those negative comments apply to anything and everything within Judaism's oral Torah. Well, they do not apply. And to claim that they do is to misread and misapply those few New Testament verses. Exact proof of this is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, in which Paul directly states that those to whom he is writing should adhere to the traditions that he taught them. Likewise, in Acts chapter 28, verse 17, Luke records that Paul, as part of his defense against those accusing him of being anti-Torah, specifically stated that he had not violated the customs, traditions in some Bible versions, of his Jewish ancestors. So, so what I'm talking about there is you have the Apostle Paul in two places upholding certain traditions and customs. So, obviously, all traditions and customs are not bad. 
And I'm talking here about Jewish traditions and customs. I'm talking about Pharisaic traditions and customs. They were not all bad. So for Christians to take a statement against the traditions of man from out of context from the New Testament passages and then apply it to all traditions and customs is frankly stupid, and it violates the Apostle Paul's own words. These New Testament passages which are found in two of Paul's letters and apply to him in the Acts account authored by Luke, prove that Paul agreed with and utilized many of the traditions he had learned as part of his Judaic schooling under the guidance of the exalted Rabbi Gamaliel the Elder, or Gamaliel I. This fact is even more obvious from his words in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, where he states that he was extremely zealous for the traditions and his advanced position relative to Torah knowledge. The Apostle Paul was a Torah genius, which is something anti-Paulist, Judaic-based countermissionaries, and other haters of the New Testament deny or refuse to admit Yes, anti-Paulists are counter-missionary haters of the New Testament, despite their ignorant and disingenuous claims to the contrary. All of Paul's clear references to the usefulness of traditions needs to be weighed when passages such as Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 through 10 are read, in which he appears to conclude that such traditions are useless. Obviously, if this assumed interpretation were correct, then Paul would be directly contradicting what he says elsewhere. It is, therefore, simply a reference to the superiority of faith versus works, particularly faith in the atonement discussed in separate discussions, separate podcast. His Philippians statement is one for which similar teachings exist actually in Judaic literature. Yet, as with Paul, in none of those cases is the reader to assume the writer is anti-Torah. They are all simply communicating the necessity to always consider faith as the supreme ingredient in one's relationship to God and his Torah. Judaism's literature, frankly, is filled with references to the fact that practice of Torah without faith and purely to receive eternal reward is defective and a harmful spiritual state in which to reside. In fact, it is a basic teaching of Judaism. Paul and all other authors of the New Testament clearly revered many of the traditions which were and are found within Rabbinic Judaism's Oral Torah. Now, New Testament's faith versus works agrees with Judaism's oral Torah. Yes, the faith versus works discussions in the New Testament actually agree with what is taught in Rabbinic Judaism. I'll present a single example of Judaic Torah-centric thought regarding the central importance of faith versus works, from the many examples that exist with which the Apostle Paul and the New Testament would agree. 
To the untrained oral Torah ignorant person, this example definitely appears to be anti-Torah, just as do some of Paul's words. Now notice, as I go through this, Christians will will seem to think, they will think that these words are, are anti-Torah, just as they do Paul's words, but they're not anti-Torah. I will quote from page 107 of the book, In the Shadow of the Ladder, by Mark and Yadida Cohen. That book is a translation of some of the writings of Rabbi Yehuda Levishlag, a highly revered Judaic sage of the 20th century. May his name be for a blessing. Rabbi Eshlag is a profoundly gifted man, a tzaddik of merit, that is, a, man, a righteous man of merit, through whom much benefit to mankind has been provided. The same can be said of many other gifted Torah scholars, such as Rabbi Moshe Kaim Lazatov, Rabbi Ari Kaplan, Rabbi Bakya Ben Pekwara, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, etc. The list of such men is long. May all their names be for a blessing. Now, here's a quote from page 107 of that book, In the Shadow of the Ladder. Now listen closely. This is from a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi. Quote, But the measure of the strength of the light of Torah directly accords with the degree of a person's belief. For those who lack this faith, the reverse happens. For those who use it wrongly, he's talking about Torah, it becomes the drug of death. For they receive darkness from Torah, and their eyes are dimmed. Did you hear that? Note that Rabbi Eshlag refers to a situation in which Torah can become a drug of death, and that from Torah one can receive darkness and have their eyes dimmed. Now, this is from a Jewish rabbi, people. This is from an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, stating that in certain situations, Torah is a drug of death, you can receive darkness from it, and you can have your eyes dimmed by studying it. However, note the focus on belief and faith. Note that the faith versus works implication is present. And this is from a rabbi of the 20th century speaking on a fundamental doctrine of Judaism. Wow. A rabbi claiming that Torah, for those who lack faith, becomes a drug of death? And that Torah can cause darkness and result in one's eyes being dimmed? My friend, there is nothing that the Apostle Paul writes that exceeds the apparent anti-Torah statements from that rabbi. If you were to read that and not know where it comes from, if someone were to listen to what I just read from that book, and not know where it originated, not know where the quote originated, they would think, yeah, see, Torah is a drug of death. Torah is abolished. We don't need Torah. But that's not what he meant at all. The focus was simply on faith. And that's the mistake Christians make. They assume things because they're ignorant of Torah. Well, if you think the rabbi's words are anti-Torah, then you are very wrong. Rabbi Eshlag is most certainly not anti-Torah, 
and neither is the Apostle Paul. Can Torah be a drug of death? Can Torah make one's eyes dimmed? Can Torah cause darkness? Indeed, it can be. It can do those things. But only if studied and practiced with the wrong intent and in an improper manner. And you can find numerous similar focused, faith-focused statements within Rabbinic Judaism's writings that to the untrained eye could be wrongly judged as anti-Torah. From chapter 2 of the aforementioned book, In the Shadow of the Ladder, we find further proof of parallels to Paul's and the actual New Testament's teachings versus what Christianity falsely claims Paul and the New Testament teaches. On page 27 of that book, we find, Rabbi Eshlag emphasizes the importance of allowing our study to affect our behavior in practice without the constant attention of our, of, on our inner int- intentions Our work in Torah and mitzvot, that is, good deeds or commandments, has little meaning. He, that is, Rabbi Eshlag, decried the misuse of Torah and the empty practice of the the mitzvot so common among the religious establishment. Outer ritual, that is, works, carried out without the intention of service, is the drug of death, he declared. This attitude stirred up opposition, but he did not react, preferring to continue his true work of writing and teaching, end quote. Now, that is from the editor, excuse me, within that book. And you will note that Rabbi Ashlag, because you have different feelings on this among the rabbis within Judaism. Rabbi Ashlag is one of those who would be very much like Paul. Frankly, Rabbi Ashlag... Seems very, very similar to Paul. The only difference, really, basically, between Rabbi Shlag and the Apostle Paul is the Apostle Paul accepted Yeshua. But in regard in regards to their view of faith and works, they're exactly the same. Now, let me read this again. Let me read that quote again, and I'll read it a bit more quickly. This is from the editor of that book, in the Shadow of the Ladder. Quote. Rabbi Ashlag emphasizes the importance of allowing our study to affect our behavior in practice without the constant attention on our inner intentions. Our work in Torah and mitzvot, that is, good deeds or commandments, has little meaning. He, Rabbi Ashlag, decried the misuse of Torah and the empty practice of the mitzvot so common among the religious establishment. Outer ritual, that is, carrying out mitzvot and works of Torah, carried out without the intention of service, that is, faith, is the drug of death, he declared. This attitude stirred up opposition, but he did not react, preferring to continue his true work of writing and teaching, end quote. Now, note how there was and is opposition to what this Torah-loving rabbi said, as there was opposition to what was said by two Torah-loving characters within the New Testament, Yeshua the Messiah and the Apostle Paul. The same applies to all New Testament authors. Now, and I'll just throw this in because it's interesting. I do not think it's an accident that despite the, the 
extreme knowledge and, and devotion of Rabbi Shlag, you do not hear his name talked about much with, among the rabbis within Judaism. He's not discussed much when sages are discussed. And frankly, I think this is why. This is why. Because Rabbi Ashlag focused on faith, and he rebuked other Jews who focused too much on the pedantic, overly scrupulous, persnickety works. People who focused on the Durbanans and observance of all these hundreds and hundreds of little commandments and dictates. His focus was on faith, not on those dictates. And he was a Jewish rabbi. And because of that, in my opinion, a lot of other Jewish rabbis don't want people to really know about his material. Nevertheless, he's not the only rabbi that feels that way. I could name a couple of rabbis that I'm certain to this today, current rabbis who feel the same, but I won't name them because I don't want their uh, reputation to be besmirked by other Jews. So, here we have two, that is those two quotes, of many similar statements found within Judaism's literature that basically says much the same thing that the Apostle Shaul or Apostle Paul said within a few scattered verses of his epistles. In both cases, the focus, that is in both cases from Rabbi Schlag's material, the focus is on faith and not on attacking the Torah. In fact, the faith discussions within rabbinic Judaism writings are actually much more comprehensive than are the limited teachings found within Paul's epistles or the rest of the New Testament. There's much, much more discussion of faith found within Judaism's material for a simple reason, because there's more Judaism, Judaism material. There's much, much more that uh, material within Judaism as far as publication of books and you have the Talmud, etc., etc. There's a lot more stuff there. Since it is important to note, I will restate that just like the Apostle Shaul or Paul, Messiah Yeshua, and Yeshua's other followers mentioned in the New Testament, Rabbi Ashlag was often opposed by his contemporaries. The same can be said for other rabbis who went against the status quo of rabbinic Judaism's often more legalistic establishment. Such information shows that Judaic writings actually prove crucially useful in properly interpreting the Apostle Paul's words and the entire New Testament. Of course, very few Christians ever reference such material to gain a better grasp of the intent of Paul's epistles, and because of that, for almost 2,000 years, the Apostle Paul has been misrepresented by Christianity. Now he is not only misrepresented, but he is also slanderously and savagely attacked by anti-Paulist. And in both cases, the reasons are identical. A severe ignorance of the Apostle Paul's intent because of Torah illiteracy among those who attack him and misrepresent him. There are lots of similar examples found all throughout Judaic writings, and I list books among the first of, the, of those shown on the bookshelf page of the Torah Messiah website in which numerous Judaic parallels to Paul's epistles can be found. Ponder this example that I just went through. 
many such books exist, if you care to reference them. And on the Torah Messiah website, I have a bookshelf page, and I just list some books. There are many more books. And if a person reads through Oral Torah, through Masar, through various things within Oral Torah, you will find an enormous amount of material that sounds just like you're reading from the New Testament. Okay, Yeshua, or Jesus, actually called Oral Torah Scripture. There is evidence of Yeshua the Messiah, or Jesus, referencing the Oral Torah. Yes, there is evidence of that, folks. For instance, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 23 through, through 33, we find Yeshua the Messiah in a conversation with some Sadducees. Parallel passages are found in Mark, chapter 12, and the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. So here I'm going to read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 23 through 30. And I'll be using the NET translation. Again, Matthew 22, verses 23 through 30. <clears throat> Excuse me. The same day Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and father children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The second did the same, and the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. Yeshua answered them, You are deceived because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. End quote. Okay. From where did Yeshua obtain this information? His answer. Where, where did he get that answer? Did it come from the Tanakh? irreverently called the Old Testament by Christians? Is that where he obtained it? No, you're not going to find, at least I haven't, and if anyone out there knows the passages from the Tanakh where this is found, please send them to me. If you know where it is found, where Yeshua's answer is found, send it to me. Remember, Yeshua told them that they didn't know the Scriptures or the power of God, and then he explained how in the resurrection, people aren't married, and they're not given in marriage, but they're like angels in heaven. Send me the scriptures from the Tanakh that clearly teach that, if you know where they exist, because I've never found that. In my opinion, you will not find that in the Bible, at least not in the Tanakh. So what is he referencing? What was Yeshua actually referencing for this answer? He is referencing oral Torah, evidence of which I present as follows. Now, people might say, well, Yeshua was, he knew everything, so he just gave him an answer. Okay, let's go with that. You say Yeshua knows everything. But where is this actual issue answered? 
in the books and information we have available to us, where do we find this same answer that he gave? And notice he said, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. So what scriptures is he referring to? All right. Mishnah Torah is a pivotal work of grand achievement by Rabbi Moshe ben Rabbi Moshe ben Memon, often called Rambam, or excuse me, Rambam, R A M B A M. That's an acronym. People, when they say, when you hear Rambam or Rambam, some may say they're referring to Rabbi Moshe ben Memon, and he's generally more often called Rabbi Moses Maimonides. You'll hear people refer to Maimonides or Rambam. This is who they're referring to. They're referring to the author of Mishnah Torah. Mishnah Torah is a very extensive, voluminous set of writings in which Maimonides sought to present the Talmud in a more understandable format. And I have a copy. I have the Mishnah Torah. Anyone who has read the Talmud will realize the need for such thing. The, the Talmud is, is just out there. It's, it is all over the place. It's difficult to read. So what Maimonides did is he, as a Torah scholar, Talmud, Talmud scholar, way back centuries ago, he wrote this series of volumes that all together are called Mishnah Torah. And it, will, it covers one or two bookshelves, depending on how long, how wide your, book, your bookshelves are. It's a lot, of, a lot of material. And what he did was basically take the Talmud and write it in a far easier format, in a way that is much, much easier to be understood. And today, even to this very day, Maimonides or Rambam is one of the focuses of study within rabbinic Judaism. He is an extremely high-revered rabbi, and generally speaking, if you reference the Mishnah Torah, it's considered the question is closed. The answer is found. So Mishnah Torah basically is a much easier Talmud, you might say. It's not the Talmud. The Talmud is composed of the Mishnah and the Gemara. It's not the Talmud, but take it takes the wild, difficult-to-understand, jumping-around-all-over-the-place Talmud, and it basically presents the teachings of the Talmud in a far easier format. And pretty much anyone of just average intellect, if you read Mishnah Torah, you would understand it. It's not difficult to read. So again, anyone who has read the Talmud will realize the need for something like Mishnah Torah. And Rambam accomplished his goal exceedingly well. Within the English translation of Mishnah Torah, published in 29 volumes by Maznaim Publishing Company, and that's what I actually own, the 29-volume set from Masnaim. we find the following in the Perkiavot volume, Appendix B, page 166. It is actually a quote worded slightly different, differently from Berachot 17a of the Talmud, that is Tractate Berachot 17a of the Talmud, to which he is referring. So he's referring directly to the Talmud when he writes this. Quote, our sages said, in the world to come, which roughly is roughly equivalent to what Christians think of as heaven, in the world to come, there is neither eating, nor drinking, 
nor bathing, nor anointment, nor sex. End quote. Note that the sages of the Oral Torah taught there will be no sex in the future world. Thus, or man and one, women will not uh, populate. There will be no sexual intercourse of the world to come, according to the sages. Thus, there will obviously be no marriage. Therefore, Yeshua, in his re- reply to the Sadducees, is simply pointing out to those Sadducees who were apparently unschooled in knowledge of oral Torah due to Sadducean rejection of oral Torah, Yeshua was pointing out that their ignorance of the scriptures was evident from their query, that they showed evidence of evidence that they didn't know the scriptures. Had they known those scriptures, they would not have posed such an ignorant question. Now, the scriptures to which he is referring is a midrash or interpretation of the sages. It's actually the traditions of the sages or the oral Torah, which is necessary and thus somewhat inseparable from the actual written holy scriptures to which those commentaries and opinions apply as a means of interpretation, explanation, and clarification. Beyond simply referencing oral Torah, Yeshua may have actually been equating it to Scripture. Now, here's what I mean by that. In the Tanakh, the answer he gave is not clearly given. It's not apparent. But within oral Torah, within traditions of the sages, just as Maimonides said, Rambam says, our sages said... In the world to come, blah, 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 there will be neither this, that, or nor sex. So the sages, the Torah scholars, were teaching this. Well, how were they teaching this? They were using their own, basically, as what we covered in earlier parts, in their madrash, in their explanations, they would bring this up, their clarifications. They, would, they knew this from simply the oral Torah that, was being, that had been transferred through the centuries down to them. This is oratory he's referring to. Therefore, we may here have, within Yeshua's response, very strong evidence that Yeshua revered oral Torah to so high a degree that he labeled it as Scripture, at least implicitly he definitely did. Now, he was probably referring perhaps to an actual passage in the Bible in the Tanakh, but there is no passage that clearly states what he stated. The understanding of those passages must come from oral Torah. Therefore, he is implicitly equating oral Torah to scriptures. There is much more evidence from the words of Yeshua and others, which we have recorded in the New Testament, since virtually everything they taught is found in Judaism's oral Torah. Even the concept of the appearances of Messiah, the two appearances of Messiah, is oral Torah-derived. And I hope in the future to have a series of podcasts where I discuss the two Messiahs, Messiah ben Yosef and Messiah ben David. That comes from oral Torah, specifically from Hashkafa. So, 
Literally, as I said in the previous part, part seven, if you were to eliminate oral Torah, there would be no New Testament. Virtually everything, with few exceptions, everything taught in the in the New Testament is found in Rabbinic Judaism's oral Torah, including two messiahs or two appearances of Messiah. There is actually very little that is new in the New Testament other than the identity of Messiah, a new level of openness to non-Jews as future recipients of eternal life, and rebuke of the elitism and exclusivity then and now present in Judaism. And actually, if you read the Torah, uh, it's, it would the openness to non-Jews and the rebuke of elitism is actually found in the Tanakh. It's just that the rabbis of Judaism overrule it through their extremely elitist opinions. So that's actually found in the Tanakh, in the actual Old Testament, in the Torah itself. So other than those new items, the only real new item is identity of Messiah. Other than those new items, most of the New Testament, which produces Christianity's doctrinal basis, is simply a small fraction of a much larger set of teachings that can be found in Judaism's oral Torah. But Christians are generally too anti-Torah and thus too Torah ignorant to know this basic fact. Therefore, the irrefutable presence of many similarities between oral Torah and the teachings within the New Testament proves oral Torah to be legitimate and necessary. It is a legitimate and necessary element of the Christian faith. Of course, that assumes that the New Testament is properly interpreted, which unfortunately is a very rare occurrence within Christian churches because of the Torah-ignorant sickness which plagues Christianity. Ironically, the misinterpretation and ignorance is itself a direct refusal among Christians to study oral Torah, which they wrongly reject. Now, I'll get into another example of oral Torah within the New Testament. And what I mean what I mean by that is I'll give an example of clear example of rabbinic oral Torah that is actually seen in the New Testament. A parallel of, of it is seen in the New Testament. Now this example will come from the apostle Shaul or Paul. And it is with regards to his teaching relative to food offered to idols. The Apostle Paul's teachings regarding food offered to idols. That teaching has a direct parallel to what you can find in Rabbinic Judaism's Oral Torah. Now, at this point, I'm going to pause. We've exceeded 35 minutes. And if I go into this particular example, this podcast, this audio will almost surely go beyond an hour. So I'm going to pause here, and this is and pause in part eight, and I will continue this in part nine of Oral Torah, Proof of Its Legitimacy and Necessity. And again, we're continuing on, we'll continue on in part nine with a discussion of premise three, 
which is how the New Testament supports and is itself a small presentation of some basic oral Torah. So we'll continue along in that specific discussion. And in that, as I said, we'll jump into the example of how Paul's teaching regarding fools, excuse me, regarding food offered to idols that you find in 1 Corinthians, that teaching has a direct parallel to oral Torah. And I'll give you a hint. It has a direct parallel to the Mishnah Torah that we just talked about. You will find a parallel discussion in the Mishnah Torah, which is the oral Torah, which comes from the Talmud. Because remember, Mishnah Torah is a rewriting, a recompilation of the Talmud to make it more understandable and easier to read. So we'll jump into that. And then, so basically we'll be showing a direct parallel from the Apostle Paul's teachings to the Talmud and the Mishnah Torah. So I look forward to addressing that. And that will be part nine. And thank you for listening. And goodbye.